This podcast is produced by the St. Louis Psychoanalytic Institute, educating professionals and helping people of all ages and circumstances to understand their lives. Visit us at stlpi.org to learn more. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor to be with you. Um, I appreciate your interest in things that interest me, and, and I hope that we'll have an enjoyable time together. In the spirit of disclosure, uh, I am not a psychoanalyst. Uh, however, I have in the past slept at a Holiday Inn Express, and I hope <laughs> that that will help me get through the talk. So. This story begins with John Bowlby, a British child psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, uh, who, after the Second World War, was commissioned by the newly formed World Health Organization to prepare a monograph on the mental health needs of children. Um, there was a lot of concern in Europe about the number of orphaned children as a result of the Second World War. And so he reviewed the world's literature. He talked to a number of experts. And what he concluded is that what is essential for a child's mental health is the quality of his early caregiving relationships, a warm, intimate, and continuous relationship with his mother or mother substitute. Monograph was published originally in 1951 and then released as a book in 1952. And essentially what we've been doing in the nearly 75 years since then is developing research that largely supports his broad uh, ideas. So tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about attachment at, in children living in extreme conditions of risk. And interestingly enough, that's exactly who Bowlby began his work, uh, studying delinquents and children raised in institutions and that sort of thing. So uh, to get us on the same page, when I say attachment, I am talking about a tendency in a young child to seek comfort, support, nurturance, and protection selectively from a relatively small number of caregiving adults. Turns out that human infants appear to be hardwired to form attachments. They have a strong biological disposition to form attachments. And so it really requires species atypical conditions for them to not form attachments. But of course that happens and that's some of what we'll be talking about tonight. So I've sort of divided the talk into three parts. The first is a sort of developmental research perspective on attachment. Um, this is talking about classifications of attachment and the strain situation procedure that many of you may have heard of. Then to talk briefly about disorders of attachment and what we know about that. And then finally to talk about what's perhaps a more uh, clinically common phenomenon, relationship-specific disturbances of attachment. Um, I'll rely heavily on research on children raised in institutions because in fact that's where the bulk of the research has been conducted. Although I have to say that it it meshes very nicely with research on children who've been abused or neglected, and I'll try to mention that as we go through this. So you may know that the strain situation procedure was developed by one of Bowlby's uh, colleagues, Mary Ainsworth. Um, it's a procedure that's designed to examine the quality of a child's attachment 
to a putative attachment figure by uh, having the child and the attachment figure engage in a series of interactions involving an unfamiliar adult uh, called a stranger. By convention, that's always a woman. And essentially what the procedure does is it looks and examines the relationship between the child's interest in exploring the environment and interest in seeking proximity and comfort and security from an attachment figure. So briefly, uh, what Antoine does is he becomes distressed by the separation from his mother when she becomes available. He immediately approaches her. He expresses his distress directly to her. It was terrible. I was all alone, all by myself. Where did you go? She picks him up, which he anticipates. He's reaching for her. She picks him up. He immediately nestles in. And by the time they've walked over to the sofa, he's already feeling better because he anticipates that when he's distressed, his mom is going to make him feel better. So he already is feeling better even as he's approaching her. And you can tell by the time they sit down on the couch, he's really largely recovered. She senses he needs a little bit of extra contact, and so she fiddles around and ties his shoe. And then he gets back down on the floor. His motivation to seek proximity has now diminished, and his motivation to explore has intensified. And that's what we mean by attachment ex exploration balance. When one is highly activated, the other is relatively deactivated. And that's exactly what we see here. So this is what secure attachment looks like. Secure attachment is a very important protective factor for young children, uh, particularly young children living in high-risk conditions. Children who are securely attached in high-risk conditions are enormously protected from adverse outcomes compared to children who are not securely attached. So based on the organization of the young child's behavior in this little procedure, um, the child's behavior is classified into one of these four types, secure, avoidant, resistant, ambivalent, or disorganized. And in extreme situations, as you'll see in just a minute, children who just don't have any attachment behaviors whatsoever are called unclassified. These are the preschool versions of the classifications. Uh, we won't go into that too much, but just to let you know what they're like. Um, it turns out that children who have disorganized attachments or unclassified attachments, we call those not organized, are at significantly increased risk for psychopathology concurrently and subsequently. Uh, and similarly, uh, on the Preschool side, disorganized, controlling, and insecure other, significant increases in risk for those young children. So given that, what happens when we look at children being raised in conditions of extreme deprivation? And these are young children living in an orphanage in Bucharest, Romania, uh, back in the early 2000s. There's a caregiver, and here are all these kids in their cribs, and they spend considerable amounts of time in those cribs. Um, and don't have a lot of meaningful contact with adult caregivers. The ratios are quite high, so there are 12 to 15 kids for each caregiver to look at. Caregivers work rotating shifts. Um, they run on an institution schedule rather than a child, individual child schedule, so diapers get changed at diaper changing time, not necessarily when the child needs a diaper change. And perhaps because of all these reasons, there's little psychological investment by the caregivers in the children. Um, or the caregiver may become involved with one particular favorite child to the exclusion of the other kids in the group. So it's a really extraordinary condition of rearing that um, these children are in. 
Not surprisingly, um, when we compare those children to typically developing Romanian kids in the community, we see about three-quarters of the community kids are securely attached. Only about 16% of the uh, kids being raised in institutions are, are securely attached. You can see the other distributions. The other dramatic finding, of course, is the most worrisome types of attachment. Almost 20% in the community kids and about 78% in the institutionalized kids. As dramatic as these results are, and as similar, by the way, as these results are to looking at samples of young children who've been maltreated, just abuse and neglect in this country, for example, you get very similar kinds of results. As dramatic as they are, they significantly underestimate the degree to which attachment is impaired in these kids. So it turns out that the coder, who is one of the world's attachment experts for these data, noticed that the kids didn't seem to really have fully formed attachments. They reminded her of Mary Ainsworth's descriptions of watching infants in the first year of life in Uganda who were in the process of developing attachments to their mothers, but they weren't completely formed yet. And she developed a five-point coding scale in which five is a fully formed attachment, Four is there was evidence of a pattern of attachment, but there were these strange anomalous behaviors that weren't accounted for by the attachment coding system. Three, where there's a clear preference expressed for the familiar person versus the unfamiliar person, but it's expressed pretty passively. Two, where there's a barely discernible difference in how the child interacts with the familiar and the unfamiliar person, and then when there's just no attachment behaviors uh, uh, evident at all. In the interest of time, I'm not going to show you these, but just to get to the results, the results are fairly stunning in that coding these blindly 100% of the community kids were rated as having fully formed attachments. 3% of the kids being raised in institutions were rated as having fully formed attachments. And as you can see, nearly a third, slightly more than a third of the institution kids have barely any attachment, if any attachment, at all to anyone. Importantly, if we just go ahead and classify the kids based on the behaviors that we see, all the way down here at two and three, you see there are 14 kids who force classified are securely attached, but who don't even have fully formed attachment relationships. So clearly, secure, secure attachment in the institutionalized kids means something different than secure attachment in the kids who are living in families. So very, very dramatic differences. So our study in Romania was actually the first ever randomized control trial of foster care as an alternative to institutional care. Foster care had never uh, been used in Romania before. There was a long tradition of having kids in institutions, and it's sort of a long story how all that happened. Um, in any case, so we assessed the kids comprehensively, including collecting these data, and then randomized half of them to placement in foster care that we provided a significant amount of support to. We recruited and trained social workers who provided support to the foster families. We consulted weekly by video with the social workers throughout the course of the study, which 
began when the children were an average of 22 months of age and continued until they were 54 months of age. So at 42 months, we repeated the strain situation procedure. And here, we're just contrasting secure attachment and insecure attachment, so secure versus everything else. And essentially, what we found was the care-as-usual kids had the least secure attachments. That's here. Foster care kids were intermediate. And the community kids who'd never been institutionalized had about 65% secure attachments, which happens to be exactly what meta-analyses say you find in low-risk, middle-class samples. So we appreciated them reading their child development texts and understanding they were supposed to be about two-thirds securely attached, which they were. Foster kids about 50-50. So what this indicates is that clearly there is a risk that continues even after placement in foster care because they're not comparable to these guys, but considerable recovery compared to the kids who had more prolonged institutional care. And by 42 months of age, we didn't keep kids in the institution, by the way, to study. And these kids began to either get returned to their biological families or to get, get placed in government foster care that began to appear. Some of them got adopted. So by 42 months, nearly half these kids were in families. And yet, you're still seeing these, uh, these effects. So the next question was, does timing of the intervention or timing of removal from these conditions of deprivation and placement in families matter? And the answer is, for attachment, yes. So here what we're doing is we've got 18 months, 20 months, 22, 24, 26, 28 months, and we've dichotomized into kids who are younger than or older than each of these ages, and we're looking at secure attachments. And what happens when you do this is somewhere around 22 months, these become significantly different. So prior to 20 months, there's no difference. Prior to 18 months, there's no difference. But around 22 months, and then for anybody older than that, you can see that the probability that the child is going to be securely attached is significantly greater for the kids placed prior to 22 months compared to after 22 months. Um, importantly, now, these are not numbers. These are percentages. So uh, some of these numbers may be kind of small. But Im importantly, some kids after 22, 24 months continue to develop secure attachments. But statistically, probabilistically, they're less likely to do so than the kids placed prior to 24 months. So it's not an absolute sensitive period. It's a relative sensitive period. So there's lots of literature suggesting that these attachment classifications are important predictors of psychopathology. So here we've got kids who came into the study as young as six months of age, as old as 31 months. They were randomized to foster care versus care as usual. And at 54 months, we conducted structured psychiatric interviews with the parents or caregivers. And we're looking here at signs of anxiety and depression. And it turns out that the kids in foster care had significant reductions in anxiety and depression uh, at 54 months of age compared to the care-as-usual kids. So we asked the question, is that effect mediated by attachment? So we had measured attachment, you remember, at 42 months of age. And we knew that the kids in foster care were more likely to be securely attached than the kids in care-as-usual. We then demonstrated that security of attachment at 42 months was inversely related to signs of anxiety and depression. So the more uh, 
so secure attachment predicted reductions in signs of anxiety and depression at 54 months. So now we have two possible pathways. There's a direct pathway, foster care versus care as usual, and there's an indirect pathway through security of attachment. So here we're asking what's the mechanism by which this effect, this particular effect occurs? And the answer is that it's the indirect pathway through security of attachment. So the reason the children had fewer signs of depression and anxiety is because they formed secure attachments. Now this effect was only significant in girls, not in boys. The numbers were small, but it looked like the boys who formed secure attachments actually also had lower, uh, lower levels of anxiety and depression. So it seems to hold for both sexes. It's just, in this case, the intervention effect was limited to girls. So there are a number of interventions that are designed to enhance and that we have evidence enhance attachment security. These are kind of attachment-based interventions. So child-parent psychotherapy, you may be familiar with its, its most well-known proponent these days is Alicia Lieberman and her group at UCSF, um, who uh, engage in intensive dyadic psychotherapy in which the therapist becomes a kind of emotional translator for the experience between the child and the parent. Attachment and biobehavioral catch-up is developed by Mary Dozier at the University of Delaware, and it's a manualized 10-session intervention where essentially you intensively train the parent to follow the child's lead. Um, and that's got very good evidence of its efficacy. Circle of security in which the, which is a kind of uh, amalgam, if you will, of object, it comes out of object relations theory and behavioral work. And it's a very visually oriented uh, video review uh, intervention, but also uh, pays a lot of attention to the parent's counter-transference to the child and recognizing that and overcoming that. And then a Dutch intervention called Video Intervention to Promote Positive Parenting that's very behavioral, it's coaching, and it's typically been used in younger kids, and it predicts more secure attachment subsequently. So there are a number of these. Now we have an increasing number of evidence-based interventions that are known to enhance uh, security of attachment as measured by the strange situation procedure. So these classifications of attachment, if you will, are essentially risk and protective factors. They're not diagnoses. They shouldn't be confused with diagnoses. They're simply risk and protective factors. And in fact, there's a real lack of specificity between particular classifications of attachment and particular types of psychopathology. So each of the insecure or disorganized classifications has predicted a wide variety of um, subsequent psychopathology. But now, as we turn to the question of attachment disorders, we're going to ask, at what point is the disturbed attachment that we're observing not just indicative of a risk factor, but is an actual disorder itself? So this is a different way of looking at attachment, and this is where we get to disorders of attachment. And this story uh, comes from Barbara Tizard's study in London in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and in those days, uh, when women had second children, they would, or when they had children, they would go into the hospital and they would be in confinement. And they'd be in for three, four weeks at a time. So oftentimes a mother would take her uh, uh, two-year-old child and put the child in what was called a residential nursery. 
There were also a number of impoverished families who would also place their kids in residential nurseries, some hoping to get the children back someday, some really not with that in mind, just abandoning the children. So there were these residential nurseries, and the residential nurseries in London in the early, late 60s, early 70s, were, had very good ratios. They were materially well supplied, but the caregivers were specifically instructed, do not form attachments to these children because they're going to end up separating from you and that will be harmful to them. So withhold all affectionate feelings for the children, just take good care of them. Um, that was the instruction. So Barbara Tizard did a study of 65 kids in these residential nurseries. Uh, and they were all in these from very early in life, first couple of months, mostly newborns, until they were at least 24 months of age. And then at 24 months of age, between age 24 months and age 48 months, 26 of the kids just remained in, in these residential nurseries. 15 got returned to their biological families who'd abandoned them, and 24 got adopted. So at age four, Tizard and her colleagues evaluated these kids, and essentially what she found was the adopted kids looked the best, the kids returned to their bio families were intermediate, and the kids in the institution looked the worst across a large number of measures. And those findings were repeated at age eight years and age 12 years. But for our purposes, we're interested in those kids who were in the residential nurseries from birth until 48 months of age. At 48 months, eight of the kids were with emotionally withdrawn and inhibited, um, really didn't relate to much of anyone. Ten of the kids were quite indiscriminate, approaching anyone, they, even people they'd never seen before, and very attention-seeking and demanding. And eight of the kids, despite all the odds against it and despite the instruction to the staff, had managed to form preferred attachments to someone on the staff. Um, and this is all revealed through in-depth interviewing uh, of the staff. So it turns out that this group became what we now call reactive attachment disorder, and this group became what's now called disinhibited social engagement disorder, it used to be reactive attachment disorder indiscriminate type. So here we go. So essentially what reactive attachment disorder is it's the lack of an attachment in a child who's cognitively old enough to have formed an attachment, which is generally somewhere around seven to nine months of age. So if the child has a developmental age of at least seven to nine months and has no attachment to anyone, that's the essence of the reactive attachment disorder. They fail to seek or respond to comfort that's offered. Turns out children are not born knowing that adults can provide them with comfort. That's something they learn through their experiences. It's just for the vast majority of children who grow up in families, it's all kind of invisible. We don't really even notice because it's so common that kids who are distressed will get comforted, and so they learn that. But if you look at kids who are raised in conditions in which there is no one responding to them, in fact, they don't know that. They have, that's something they have to learn. They have a lack of social reciprocity and significant emotion dysregulation, in particular, absence of positive affect and these kind of odd eruptions of negative affect, angry outbursts or fearful outbursts or uh, various things like that. Disinhibited social engagement disorder, on the other hand, are kids who are much brighter emotionally, in fact, overbright emotionally. 
Um, they wander off in unfamiliar settings. They lack reticence with strangers, and they're even willing to just go off with someone they've never seen before. So there's an active approaching and engaging with other people. And essentially, this is about kids who don't read social cues, who violate social boundaries. Um, so these are our types. Um, so just to call your attention to, you notice how um, there's this kind of glazed expression on her face, um, very little in the way of positive affect despite the dad's repeated uh, uh, attempts to engage her. Um, you see these kind of outbursts of negative affect uh, at various times, uh, a real lack of social reciprocity. And importantly, this is not limited to her interactions with her dad. This is how she is in the foster home. This is how she is with us. This is just how she is all of the time. So this is what reactive attachment disorder uh, looks like. Um, in our Romania study, when the kids were 54 months of age, we had a procedure to try to look at this behaviorally because most of the data we collected were caregiver reports of the child's behavior. So we created this little procedure called the stranger at the door. When the kids were four and a half years old, there were two home visits. And at the end of the initial home visit, the research assistant said to the caregiver mom, uh, so next Wednesday at two o'clock, um, we're gonna come back. And what I want you to do is stand at the door with the child when we ring the bell or knock on the door and open the door, and um, you can look at your child, but don't give your child any verbal or nonverbal directions about what to do. And so a research assistant that the child has never seen before knocks on the door, the door opens, he says, hello, my name is Florine, what's your name? Come with me, I have something to show you. And all we did was code, did the child walk off with this total stranger or not? Four and a half years old, what would you expect? So we have our three groups of kids. We have the community kids, and you can see almost none of the community kids left with the stranger. About a quarter of the kids in foster care left with the stranger, but a majority of the kids in institutions left with the stranger. This is. Now remember, at 54 months, more, more, more of these guys are in families than not, but they've had longer exposure to institutional rearing. Um, so very significant differences. So when we look at detailed interviews with caregivers about signs of reactive attachment disorder at different ages, at baseline, you see the foster care group and the care users. These are our community, I mean, our institution kids here, and these are the community kids down here. So very large differences in signs of reactive attachment disorder early on. By the first follow-up, which was at 30 months of age, the foster care kids are already indistinguishable statistically from the community kids, but very significantly lower than the kids who had longer institutional rearing. And that remains true at every point of assessment, all the way out to 12 years. These are data that are, haven't even been published yet, but are will be published in the next year or so. Um, and, but you'll see there is this kind of declining line here. It turns out, if you look at the kids who remained in institutions, who never went to a family, and there were increasingly small numbers over time, 
but their line here is completely flat. So the decline here appears to be due to kids being placed with families because, remember, what I said about reactive attachment disorder, it's essentially the lack of an attachment to anyone. So kids are born, remember, biologically predisposed to form attachments. So when these kids get in families, they form attachments and signs of this disorder diminish. And here's the most dramatic example of that. You put the kids in foster care and an average of eight months later, um, their, their signs of reactive attachment disorder are essentially gone. Now, what we are less clear about is, let's take these kids who early on had this disorder and then uh, no longer had signs later. Does that mean that they form healthy, secure attachment relationships later, or do there continue to be um, effects from these um, very serious uh, adverse early experiences? And we don't really know the answer to that. I have a videotape of little Victoria uh, at age nine um, in which she's doing a doll story completion task where um, she's presented with the beginning of a story and asked to finish it. And her responses to this are quite bizarre, really worry, worryingly uh, unusual. And so that remains an open question that needs, uh, needs further study. Okay, what about disinhibited social engagement disorder? A similar story, but not nearly as dramatic an intervention effect. So even after kids are placed in foster care, they continue to show significantly more signs of disinhibited or indiscriminate behavior compared to the community kids. Um, and in fact, that's exactly what the literature on international adoption says, that even after kids are adopted internationally and form attachments, even secure attachments to their adoptive parents, they may continue to exhibit um, very high levels of indiscriminate behavior. And in fact, this, the difference in these last two slides, the response to intervention, the intervention in this case being placed in a family, um, the difference in those responses is a, is, uh, a big part of the reason why these two disorders were separated in DSM-5 compared to being together in DSM-4. So she makes repeated efforts to comfort him and soothe him, and they're all unsuccessful. She picks him up. That's not right. She puts him down. That's not right. She tries to distract him with toys. Nothing seems to work, and he doesn't seem to have a good way of regulating his negative affect, which is what these uh, early relationships are about, doesn't seem to be uh, able, possible for him to do that. And importantly, this is the way he is with everyone. When we visited his foster home, his foster, home, foster mother was a very nice lady, but very busy. She was caring for her elderly mother, her 20-year-old handicapped son. She had about four foster kids. Her grandchildren were running wild through the place most of the time. And little Harold was just off in the corner by himself. She didn't like him very much, didn't feel very drawn to him, and just kind of ignored him, sort of went through the motions with him in terms of caring for him. We made a number of efforts to engage her, and we were unsuccessful in getting her to come into our clinic to work with us. She just claimed she was too busy and couldn't do that. So we made what for us is an unusual recommendation. We recommended that he be moved to another placement. Um, 
where he could get more individualized care. So that process took about six weeks to happen. Um, and then we waited six weeks to allow him time to settle into the new placement, to establish a relationship with his new foster mother before we did another assessment. So you're going to see him at the age of 18 months, three months after the first video that we saw. But he's only been with his foster mom for six weeks at this point. So Harold's a new man. <laughs> he's in love. So I showed this video clip to a neurobiology, neurobiologist colleague of mine. And you know, I said, and this is you know, after only six weeks uh, with the new foster mother. And he said, well, if you do the calculations at this age, there are about 50,000 synapses forming every minute. So six weeks is a lot of synapse formation. OK, so we've talked about classifications of attachment, secure, various types of insecure, disorganized, which are risk and protective factors. We've talked about these clinical disorders of attachment that seem to be uh, etiologically tied to severe neglect and lack of necessary expected input. Um, but perhaps the most common thing that we see are seriously disturbed attachment relationships. So the child has an attachment, but it's a seriously disturbed relationship. We haven't had a great way of sort of thinking about those. A number of years ago, Alicia Lieberman um, proposed that these be called secure-based distortions. And uh, she and I subsequently wrote up some case examples of that, um, which were self-endangering, vigilant, hyper-compliant, and role-reversed. Um, the problem is there's not been hardly any research conducted on these patterns, um, these descriptions. And in my experience, in the 20 years since we've wrote about this, or 25 years, is that they're not common enough to really uh, warrant. The problem with relationships is we don't have a language to describe disturbed relationships. We have a one-person psychology, as Dan Stern would say it, not a two-person psychology. And so we have a really hard time just articulating um, the problem with relationships. Um, so I'm part of a DC 0 to 3, or a 0 to 3 task force uh, which is working on a nosology of early childhood disorders, a revision of something you may or may not have heard of called DC0-3 and DC0-3R. We're expanding it to the first five years of life. And in that, in previous versions of this manual, they had specific types or classifications of relationship disorder specified. The problem is they were really descriptions of parental behavior rather than descriptions of relationship. So, um, in my mind, again, it's the same problem. It's trying to fit the incredible variety of relationship problems that we see into these little categories. And, and I, I haven't felt very comfortable with that. So what we're proposing is something called relationship-specific disorder of early childhood, in which the child exhibits persistent emotional or behavioral disturbance in the context of one relationship, but not others. And the behavioral manifestations can be infinite, essentially. So there's symptomatic behavior and functional impairment in one relationship, 
but it does not generalize to other relationships. Now I have two case examples if I have time to show them. Time for two more videos? Okay. So drawing on years of psychiatric experience, I concluded this was not going well. <laughs> so we used the time-honored technique of divide and conquer. And the case aide and I took little Robert out into the waiting room and left Dr. Momin to continue to get history from mom and kept the little girl with her. And basically the history that she gave was that this child was sort of out of control. He was running away from her in public. He was running out into the middle of the street, even though they lived in a busy street, and constantly getting himself into dangerous and risky situations. And she felt really unable to manage him. So meantime, out in the waiting room with these two highly skilled professionals, <laughs> takes him about a minute to run between us down the hall, around the corner, and he's pulling a pot of hot coffee down on himself just as we get there in time to stop. So we call Child Protective Services. Thank you very much for this referral, but we think this child needs an emergency placement. Thank you very much for your call. We don't have any emergency placements. And you know when this is occurring. It's Friday afternoon, right? Um, so I decided to cash in six years of Goodwill chips with the pediatric unit and got this kid admitted so he could at least be safe over the weekend and we could sort all this out on Monday morning. So he goes over. I spent all afternoon with the nursing staff. This is the wildest kid you've ever seen. You're going to have to one-on-one, -on -one, maybe two-on-one. -on -one. And he goes there and he's an absolute cream puff. <laughs> perfectly behaved, very calm. They did notice that he kept calling people over to his crib and, and he would hug and kiss anybody who would come over to him, which they noted was unusual. But it was basically very easy to manage. Next morning, his mom came for a visit and he was right back like this again. She left, he settled down, he was calm. She came back on Sunday morning, exactly the same thing. He began to be very wild, she left again, he settled down. By Sunday night, he, with some help, had told the pediatric resident that his mom's boyfriend was beating him, was beating the mom, etc. So, um, if we just looked at this clip and we said, well, this kid has rip-roaring ADHD, okay, but this is relationship-specific, context-specific behavior that does not generalize to other kinds of relationships. So, the mom drinks the juice, collapses, says, I'm dead. And once again, the girl has to figure out what to do. So first she says, good. But then by the time she walks back over to the table, she's beginning to get a little nervous. And she says, get back up, get back up. Um, it's probably important to know that about six months before this tape was made, and by the way, she's three and a half, not 34 months. I've switched the, slide, switched the slides around, didn't change the title. Um, six months prior to this, the mother made a serious suicide attempt and was hospitalized for a month. So the whole issue of her death is very much palpable uh, for this little girl. Whatever that means to her, it clearly means that her mom might go away for a very long time. So what we see is repeatedly, the mom puts the girl in the position of figuring out what to do, bearing the emotional burden of this relationship, so that instead of the mom being responsible for the girl's well-being, now we have this girl being responsible for the mom's well-being. And these are very tough cases because this gives the child a very special place. In the, she's absolutely essential to her mom's well-being, but she's only three years old. It's overwhelming, 
but it's irresistible at the same time. And so, you know, doing therapy to get them to do things in a different way is, is difficult. Um, I'm skipping over the therapy helps slide, so just take my word for it. Therapy can help things get better. <laughs> okay, so early deprivation severely compromises attachment, um, mostly by making it incompletely formed. Um, attachment disorders are etiologically tied to serious deprivation. Reta reactive attachment disorder is a complete lack. It resolves with adequate caregiving. Disinhibited social engagement is much less responsive or somewhat less responsive to intervention. There is some indication that um, kids who get intervention earlier may do somewhat better, but it's not completely clear. And for both of these, really, the long-term sequelae are uh, unknown. In the longest longitudinal study that's been published, the Tizard study, in adolescence, um, these kids were indiscriminate with peers, more likely to describe someone they just met as a close friend had lots of peer conflicts and peer difficulties. And relationship-specific disorders clearly need further study. So on that note, I will thank you. And if we have time, I'm happy to take questions or comments. <laughs>